0: Before we open up God's word, uh, would you pray with me one more time?
1: Father God, we've reached that point in our worship of you. Where we with expectant hearts will hear from you. You will speak to us, Lord, through your word, because your word is living and active.
0: And we know when the Bible speaks, you speak. And so give us ears now to hear your truth, to hear your voice. You tell us that the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. And so we ask now that we would hear you. We ask that your truth would be precious to us. Piercing to us. That it would wound if it needs to wound, it would heal what it needs to heal. That it would build up, encourage, edify, and exhort us. God, I'm reminded that what we are doing right now is foolishness to the world.
1: But we know, Lord, that it is your infinite wisdom. that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world.
0: Father, for any hearts that are here this morning that are slumbering, we pray that your voice would wake them up. For hearts that are cold, that they would be warmed. For hearts that are dead, that they would be brought to life. The words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, Lord. Holy Spirit, go forth now. And do
1: what only you can do. And that is make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
0: So about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more, I found myself sitting in Walker Brothers about to have breakfast with another Christian brother. Um, This situation, though, was far from normal for most people observing it. And here's why. On one end of the booth, you have me. On the other end of the booth, you have the man I was meeting with. We haven't ever met before in person and sat down. Well, we had talked at church, but we never sat down for a meal. And so we walk into Walker Brothers, and on his end of the booth, he's about 60 years old. He's in his 60s. He's well-dressed, dressed very professionally. He had attended Harvard. He was an accomplished lawyer. He was Jewish. He's traveled to places I'd only read about in books. On my end of the booth, I'm in my late 20s. I think I still had earrings in my ears at that time. I was very much flaunting always my tattoos. I'm Puerto Rican, grew up in the city, so still had a little city swagger about me in my sin and pride. I was in my sophomore year of college, so I didn't know a whole lot. I didn't grow up with a great education. And I think I probably strolled in there with some loose jeans, a hoodie, probably a ball cap backwards, and some Nikes. And I had a reputation about being a little bit of of a roughneck. People probably thought I was sitting with my parole officer
1: to be honest, or
0: my lawyer. Um, but I still remember as I sat with him, he kind of chuckled and he said, when would a Puerto Rican like you and a Jew like me ever sit down for breakfast and be friends, but only Christ. And only Christ would have brought us together at that place and, and made us friends, brothers. And I've really never forgotten that moment. It's really stood out to me as the grace, the grace that God shows. Because outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, the two of us probably would never have met. The two of us probably would have had strong stereotypical views of each other. We never would have been in the same covenant community. And let alone, we never would have been one in Christ. But because of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done in his finished work, there is a bond, a brotherhood, a community, a oneness there that defies anything the world could ever offer. Defies common interests. Because outside of Christ, me and that, guy, that gentleman probably don't have a whole lot in common. But in Christ, we have the most important things in common. And so that's the truth that I want to draw our attention to this morning. Last week we saw that we were all ministers, we've all been entrusted with the ministry of the gospel, so therefore we all are ministers in some capacity, and that one of the things a minister is called to do is to suffer. But this week we're going to see that as ministers we're called to be stewards of the message of Christ, and that means that all of us have been entrusted to proclaim that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we are all made one in the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith in the Lord, we are entrusted to proclaim that by faith in Christ, we are all one in Christ. So if you have a copy, if you, please turn with me your copy of God's word. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27.
1: Let me read them for us. of which I was made a minister according to the
0: stewardship from God given to me for you so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The first point this morning I want us to see is that we are stewards by divine commission. We are stewards by divine commission. We see this in verse 25, of which I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you. Paul recognizes, Paul states here, makes it clear, which he did earlier in this letter, that he has been commissioned by God. God is the one who has called him to be this minister. Again, just by just to kind of summarize what we looked at early on in this series, Paul never sought this out. He never filled out a job application to be a minister. He wasn't interviewed and selected from a pool of other ministry ministry candidates by the apostle search committee. He didn't take a bunch of personality tests and spiritual gift tests to see if he matched the profile. That they were looking for. No, it says here of which I was made a minister. And I love the fact that it says he was made a minister. Because it means that from eternity past, not only was Paul called unto salvation, but he was called unto this being of a minister. It's part of what the Lord had in mind. Always for Paul. So in 1 Timothy. Chapter 1. Verses 12 through 14, it reads, Paul writes, I am grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he regarded me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Paul recognizes and he makes clear that it was God who put him into service. He wasn't he didn't apply, he was appointed. He was a minister by the sovereign will of God, and because he was made a minister, that means that he is a man under orders. And that's important for us to recognize because you have not only been called unto salvation, but you have been called unto the ministry. Paul was called to that in the capacity of it as an apostle, but each and every one of us have been called to the ministry of the saints. It's in Ephesians chapter four. We see that by the sovereign will of God, you are saved Unto service. But Paul wasn't just made a minister. We also see here that he was entrusted by God, which is what we see by that word stewardship. According to the stewardship from God given to me for you. Now, this was really interesting. I, I must've totally forgot my Greek, pro, for, I guess, because as I looked up the word stewardship, I recognized it was made up of two words, oikos, And Nemo, which means, oikos means house, and Nemo means to manage. And I never realized that because I eat that yogurt all the time. I never realized that yogurt really meant family or home.
1: Um, Just the weirdest thing to realize. Paul, as a steward, is saying
0: that he has been entrusted to manage the household of God as a steward he's called so the church is referred to as the household of god in first timothy chapter 3 verse 15 it reads but in case i am delayed i write to you so that you will know how you ought, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of god and so paul recognizes as a minister i am supposed to manage care for this household that belongs to God. Now it's interesting because stewards in that time were typically slaves and they managed the home, home and affairs of their masters. So think about this. A steward is completely responsible for all that's been entrusted to them, but none of it actually belongs to them. So he has the responsibility, but not the ownership because the household of believers belongs to God. Paul has simply been entrusted to care for them. Now in verse 25, right? He says, "Given to the stewardship from God given to me for you. So you there is interesting, and we're going to unpack this more in the service. You, at first glance, you would think of the Colossian church. And that's true, but there's even a more direct meaning, I think, that's being hinted at. And so I think to unpack that, that, we need to look at Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, we see specifically this stewardship that Paul's been given. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. This is at the conversion of Paul. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen entrant of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings of the sons of Israel. So we see there that Paul is being called the apostle to the Gentiles. This is picked up again in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. In Galatians 1.15, it reads, but when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me to his grace, I was pleased. So Paul in Acts nine is called the apostles of the Gentiles in Galatians one We see that this is from eternity past. Verse 16 to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him as good news among the Gentiles. So what we're seeing here in Ephesians uh, in Colossians one is that Paul is called to manage the church in a general sense, but especially in this passage is talking specifically about his ministry to the Gentile believers. We're going to develop that idea more in verse 27 when we get there. But Paul recognizes that he has been called to manage, care for, build up, protect the church, and specifically the Gentile believers that make up the household of faith. And then he goes on in verse 25, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God.
1: Fully carry out. I
0: must fulfill this. I must complete it. I must see it to its end. What I love about Paul is that he challenges me to make sure that I'm a man of singular focus and conviction. He challenges all of us to that. Do you realize how many really good ministry initiatives Paul could have done? Paul could have had so many great ministry initiatives. Paul really could have probably hunkered down in one of the places that he visited and developed a megachurch. And think about all the good he could have done in that community. He could have equipped so many people and sent them out. He could have helped, but no, Paul's like, no, I've been given orders by God. I am called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so, Hey, I could stay here and probably do really good work, but I got to keep, I got to keep it moving. I got to make sure the gospel reaches every corner. God had called him to do something and he would make sure that it was completed. Paul was not the kind of man who would, partially do something, start something. If he began it, he would finish it. He knew that he was called to be the mouthpiece of the living God. And so he therefore was resolved to carry it out. He was going to preach until his mouth worked no more. And you know, what's beautiful. I love hearing is that he did, he completed it. What God had called him to do, Paul completed by the strength that God has given him. Second Corinthians is Paul's final letter before he dies. It's the Passing off of the baton to young Timothy. And in chapter four, verse seven, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. Paul understood God had called him unto salvation, that God had called him to be a minister, that God had called him to be a steward unto the Gentiles, and that he was to preach and preach and preach so that people would come to faith in Christ. And that's what he did unto his old age. Paul didn't have a retirement plan. His retirement plan was glory. I'll retire when I am in the presence of Christ Jesus. But until then, if there is strength in my body, I'm going to proclaim Christ.
1: That's challenging, isn't it? We have 13 letters of the Apostle Paul, we have the book of Acts. We have not
0: one recorded vacation. There's no vacations. I'm not saying vacations are bad, I'm not saying Paul never rested. But the picture we get of Paul is almost as if he's a man who's obsessed or possessed, right? He just has to keep going because Christ is so worthy. And so I'm a minister. I'm a steward. I've been entrusted. I'm going to proclaim. I must go and do this. And he gives his entire life to it.
1: He recognizes Rightly, that as a steward, he is a slave of Christ.
0: As a slave, he must focus on the will of the master. And so that's what he does. And you and I as stewards who have been commissioned divinely by God himself have to recognize we have a master. We are his slaves. He is a great and good master, but we are his slaves to do his will. And that's it. None of us are apostles. Some of us are pastors. One of us is a pastor here this morning. A couple of us are in an elder capacity. Others may become elders in this room. Who knows? But every single one of us are stewards of the gifts that God has given us, first and foremost. And as stewards, we need to use them accordingly. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 tells us, As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God.
1: God has given you gifts to be employed in service to him as his stewards. But, you know, we sometimes make a little bit too much of these gifts, of spiritual gifts.
0: Because we think that that means we can only do the things that we're gifted in. Each and every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ has been entrusted with the word of God. Every single follower of the Lord Jesus Christ has been given the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so that means each and every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ has a responsibility as stewards to proclaim the word of God. To encourage each other with the word of God, to exhort with the word of God, to reprove with the word of God, to correct with the word of God, to be trained and train others in the word of God.
1: That is our ministry.
0: The book of Titus, if you would, chapter two is a very powerful chapter. And I want you to hear Titus two eleven through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us that we might that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for the good works. Here's the kicker, verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We all have that responsibility.
1: We all have that responsibility to steward that. 1 Peter 3.15,
0: but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready, let me repeat that, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. You are a steward of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must be, and not only the gospel, but the entire counsel of God. And so we have a
1: ministry of the word. What is true of Paul in a specific sense as an apostle
0: is true of all believers. We are ministers, we are
1: stewards, and we must proclaim this message. So that's our first point that we are
0: stewards by divine commission. But Paul goes on in verse point, uh, point number two, we are stewards of the gospel. So we're gonna unpack this now a little bit more. Let me read verses 26 and 27. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that word mystery is really important. It appears twice here in verses 26 and 27. It appears four times in the book of Colossians. You see it again in chapter two, verse two, and chapter four, verse three. Why is the word mystery so important in this letter? It's important because the false teachers that were seeking to infiltrate the church were espousing that they had some kind of secret knowledge, mysterious knowledge that was beyond the word of God and beyond the teaching of the apostles. So Paul's taking this notion they have and using it against them. And see, it wasn't just the the false teachers infiltrating the church during the Roman empire. There was this idea that of, of mysterious teachings, and it was associated with a special knowledge Only a few had that special knowledge, but you could access it for a price. And so you would pay a fee and they would disclose the secret knowledge to you. So Paul takes it, flips it on his head. And he says, you know, God has actually the true secret knowledge, the true mystery, and it's free of charge. God will reveal it to you completely free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to purchase it. You just have to receive it. Now, the word mystery, what does it mean, though? Biblically, as we look throughout the the scriptures, and it, it appears, I think, nine times in the book of Daniel. It carries the sense of some knowledge that God alone has, and up to this point has not disclosed it to his people. And it's often used with God's plan of redemption. There is something regarding the unfolding plan of redemption that God knows and has not yet revealed, but will.
1: Daniel chapter 2 is a really good example of this. In Daniel chapter 2,
0: verse 28, it reads. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the last days. This was your dream and the visions of your head while on your bed. It is God who makes known the mysteries. See, during Daniel's time, you know, the king had had these dreams. None of the wise men he had in his court could figure it out. None of the conjurers, magicians, or diviners were able to tell the king what it meant. The only person who could tell the king what his dream meant was Daniel, and the only reason Daniel could do it was because God had revealed to Daniel. We're going to see what this mystery exactly is in a few minutes, but I think what's really important for us to understand and never forget, is that God is always the source and the revealer of understanding biblical spiritual things. In our culture today, we see people want to do the Enneagrams, and I mean, people still do psychic reading. People are always looking for some new area, and some new way to somehow get a deeper insight into the things of God. You have the word of God. That's all we need. The word of God and the spirit of God is how the mysteries of God are revealed to his people. There is nothing needed beyond that. If somehow you think you're going to unlock some secret knowledge apart from God and his word, newsflash, whatever you're unlocking is probably demonic. Because it's not of the Lord. The Lord operates in and through his word by his spirit. But before we actually look at what this mystery is, it's important to recognize this mystery is concealed. It's been kept secret. It's been put out of sight for past ages and generations, right? And he's talking there about this period in redemptive history up until now. It's not been accessible. It's not that people hadn't tried. People are always trying to figure
1: it out. How many books out there about blood moons and the end days have we had, right? try to figure out the mystery of God and when he'll return.
0: But they, have, they, they weren't able to because human reason can never on its own access divine mysteries. It's impossible. That's why if somebody starts saying they know when Jesus is going to return, you can just hit mute. They don't. They don't. God has not revealed that to man. In Job chapter 11, verse 7, it says, can you find the depths of God? Can you find the limits of the Almighty? It's a really arrogant thing to think that somehow we are so smart, so educated that we can figure out the things of God on our own. It is the height of arrogance. We can't. We are fully dependent upon God revealing and giving understanding.
1: Now, in the Old Testament, there were hints about this mystery that was coming. But they missed it.
0: Isaiah chapter 19 verses 18 through
1: 24. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the
0: language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. And one will be called the city of this destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh near its border. And it will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh and the host in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus, Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make a vow to Yahweh and pay it. We see that there. There's there's a savior coming. There's a hint of it. And that's littered throughout the entire Bible, Isaiah 53, another hint at the promise of the coming of the Messiah. There were hints of what this mystery is. There was a savior coming and what he would accomplish, but they missed it. It was not fully put into sight. But now at this point in redemptive history, when the Lord Jesus Christ Comes when God the Son takes upon flesh in the incarnation. Colossians tells us now it was when God willed to make known. I don't know about you, but I read verse 27, to whom, or verse 26, but now has been manifested. This is a climactic statement. It's saying we have now reached a point in history when everything has reached that point.
1: The mystery, everything, it's now arrived. But it's interesting, even though God has revealed
0: the mystery, do you see how not everybody can see it?
1: Verse 26 But now has been manifested to who? His saints. That's who he's willed to make it known.
0: His holy ones, the ones he has set apart. The ones that he has called unto salvation, that's
1: the people who have eyes to see it because, again, human intellect profits nothing.
0: Natural man cannot discover the things of God. God must give us new life. He must give us a new heart and new spiritual eyes to see what is in front of us, what has been revealed. Natural man trying to see what has been revealed that is called the mystery of Christ is no more possible than someone who's blind trying to be able to appreciate a rainbow. They don't have the eyes for it. It doesn't diminish the beauty and magnitude of what's been revealed, what's there, but they don't have eyes to see it. God must give them eyes to see this revealed mystery. Again, that's how all truth always works. You must be born again to understand the things of God. So now let's begin to understand what this mystery is. And we got to look at one more Old Testament passage to really understand, because I really want you guys to see that it was told of old. It's not some new thing that people are like, where did that come from? It's been there. Go to Isaiah Ezekiel chapter 36
1: Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you,
0: and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will be careful to do my judgments. This mystery that Paul is about to unpack has been there all along. God has always been saying specifically Yahweh, right? Because it's a covenant promise. This is passage in Ezekiel is part of the new covenant. So God, as Yahweh speaking covenant to these people, is telling them, I have been promising that a day was coming when I would fully and finally cleanse people from their sins. When I would give them a new heart, a heart of flesh. When my spirit would live in them. When I would empower and enable them to be able to walk obediently according to my word. That
1: has always been what Yahweh was telling his people. That had been the hope. But they didn't understand it fully. Israel somehow just did not have the eyes to see it at that point.
0: So now that's the hint of the mystery of what it was. Let's see what this mystery actually is fully unpacked. And in order to do so, we need to go to a commentary on Colossians called the book of Ephesians. So we have to turn to Ephesians
1: to fully understand this mystery. So go to Ephesians chapter three. We're going to read verses one through seven.
0: For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, if indeed you heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, about which when you can read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, according to the working of his power. Do you see how those, the passage of Colossians and Ephesians, there's so much similarity and overlap in the wording. What Paul wrote in Colossians one was kind of a, very abridged statement in reference to what he had unpacked more fully here in Ephesians. Now we need to use a little bit of historical imagination to recognize why this is such a mystery and why it's so profound. Let's travel back in time and imagine we lived during this time, during the time of Christ and the apostles. Gentile, if you were Jewish, you would look at the Gentiles non-Jews, as being enemies of God and enemies of his people. You would look at a Gentile and be like, no, they don't have any access to the knowledge of God unless they converted to Judaism. And if there were children born of mixed marriages,
1: in the most literal sense, they would be considered unclean and bastards. But now Paul Is saying, well, those
0: unclean, non-knowledge-having enemies of God and enemies of us, guess what? They're part of your family. They're part of your family. They're going to sit at your dinner table. Paul's saying that by faith in Christ, Gentiles have received the forgiveness of sins. And we can go so far as to say are viewed as true Israelites and true Jews. They're partakers of the promises that God has made. If you were Jewish and heard that your head would be spinning, you might even be angry. What are you talking about? Because you weren't raised that way at all. I am am right now. See, Lance is like, what are you talking about? Right. But this is what we've been seeing building up to this point, because in Colossians chapter one, we looked at verses 15 through, through 23, how he was reconciling all things and reconciling all peoples been building to this. Jesus of Nazareth didn't come as a savior to the Jews. He came as a savior to the world. Notice John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Jews. No, who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is the sacrificial
1: lamb, the savior and the atoning sacrifice for people of every tribe, nation and tongue. So we're going to unpack this a little bit more. Jesus is the true
0: seed of Abraham. He's the true seed of Abraham. If we were to go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, it reads Nevertheless, knowing that man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Then you jump to verses 28 and 29. Uh, Then you, sorry, that was chapter two. Then you go to chapter three and you look at verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular, he does not say, and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed that is Christ. So Jesus is the true promised seed of Abraham. Chapter three, verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. And so a Gentile placing faith in Jesus Christ becomes a true seed of Abraham and can be said to be a true Israelite, a true Jew. Interesting. Interestingly, The Jews look back to Abraham as father Abraham, but that promise in Genesis, the promise that God made to Abraham, Abraham wasn't considered a Jew yet. There was no Israel yet. Genesis, the promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse three. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families, not just the Jewish families, all the families on the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Because when Abraham's true seed, which is Christ, comes, everybody who by faith in Christ becomes the seed of Abraham. And so this mystery is that what, every, what the Jews thought was simply for them is actually for the Gentile as well through Christ. That is a great mystery. And would have caused a lot of conversation back then, to put it mildly. But look at how he describes it. I love how Paul describes this. This mystery in verse 27, what is the riches of the glory? Riches, riches! right? He wants to heighten the value of this mystery. It's riches and glory, right? A term that's simply, typically just used for God alone is being used to describe this mystery because what God has done is so rich and so glorious and it shows us about who he is and his richness and glorious.
1: And what is he, then he tells the Gentiles that are hearing this, which is Christ in you. You imagine a Gentile being told Christ is in you. Imagine the Jew hearing Christ is in him. That's an amazing thing to say that Christ lives in every single person
0: who has come to faith in him by his, by the Holy spirit. When you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he will indwell Jew and Gentile by his Holy
1: Spirit. That was true in Paul's day. It's true today. Christ in you. Like, I really want you to marvel
0: at that. If you're sitting here today and you truly are a follower of Jesus, he is living in and through you by his Holy Spirit. In that sense, we are all supernatural beings. It's so important, that phrase, Christ in you. Those three words are so important because it means that we are now defined by what God has done through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It means that we are now defined by the relationship God has given us through his son. It means we are no longer defined by who we are, what we've done, or what we will do. It means that if Christ is in us and we are in Christ, Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Did you hear that? It's no longer I who live. You ceased to exist once Christ took residence in you by his Holy Spirit and praise God that he did it in my life because there's nothing within me I would want to continue on. Apart from Jesus, I recognize I'm a horrible human being, full of all types of sin, iniquity. But Christ is in me by his spirit, and he is cleaning house. He is sanctifying. He has residence and ownership. That wasn't just true for the Jew, it was true for the Gentile.
1: And this Christ in you, he says in verse 27, is the hope Of glory.
0: It's a beautiful thing, right? The reality that we are united with Christ is defined as our hope of glory. He is our hope of the glory to come. This is the third time in chapter one that the word hope has come up, and every single time it's been in relation to the gospel. And that's extremely fitting because the great hope of the Christian is not to be in gold-paved streets and live in mansions. It's not that you're going to be free from sickness and heartbreak. It's not that you're going to see loved ones in heaven. The great hope and glory of heaven is that we will be able to worship and enjoy God unhindered through Christ. The great hope in glory of the Christian is that because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they will surely be resurrected as Christ was resurrected. They will be raised up. They will be glorified and they will be seated with him in glory. And once we are there, we are going to be enabled to see behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. What Moses could only see in in part, we will see in the in fullness in the face of Jesus.
1: In a dying world with so much darkness and sin and, and heartache. And I'm talking
0: about the time back then for the Colossians. With the Roman Empire being the Roman Empire, the Gentiles could say that ho- Paul is in the Gentiles, that hope, that hope
1: that Israel had is your hope too, in Christ. It's your hope too. So we're going to try to land the plane here. This is the message that the world needs to hear. That in and through Jesus Christ...
0: Humanity can be reconciled to God and then be reconciled to each other. There's so much arguing and talk about how we're divided by race, how we're divided by socioeconomic brackets, how we're divided on what gender is and sexual orientation and everything else. And the world has its proposed solutions. Well, certain groups need to acknowledge your privilege and
1: repent of it. Well, you know, there's been so much inequality, we don't need equality anymore, we need equity.
0: Or, you know what? You need to read all the newest sociological and anthropological books to better understand the experience of those people that you are unable to understand. In undergirding all of this is something some people, there's this moving new trend underneath all of this that's saying, if you're not doing any of those things, you're not having empathy. Now, I want to draw a distinction here because I don't think this has hit the mainstream yet, just like some of these other ideologies have been brewing for a while. There is a push to do away with the word sympathy and replace it with empathy. And it's important because if you make that move and you adopt it and you choose empathy over sympathy, then by default, all those things we talked about privilege, sociology, you have to accept it. And here's why. Sympathy means we acknowledge someone else's pain or situation. But empathy says, I'm going to choose to feel that pain with you. So here's an example. Sympathy would say, I care about you if someone's in a rough situation. Empathy says, I'm hurting with you. Now, that sounds pretty good. sounds really loving. I'm hurting with you. I'm in it with you. But it's dangerous. Because what empathy is saying is you need to be able to step into their shoes in order to be able to see it through their eyes you see how this creates the racial divide. So much of what we're talking about these days. But if you step into their shoes and you see it from their eyes, you're not, how do you know that you're not, you're, at that point, you're not able to objectively see if they're wrong. I have little children. My children and anybody who's had children would want me to see something from their position, but because of the vantage point I have, I can see sometimes that they're wrong little kid will tell you from their vantage point, vegetables are bad. Should I be empathetic? you you know, let me come down to your level. Yeah. Broccoli is a horrible thing. Let's do away broccoli. You should just have ice cream for dinner. That's empathy. Sympathy is like, Hey buddy, I understand why you feel that way, but we know that this is good for you. Empathy means that that person's perspective is their truth. There's the danger, though. It's there, it does away with objective truth. There is no objective truth. There is no such standard. There's just what that person perceives to be true based on how they feel and perceive it. And if you're going to be empathetic on all fronts, there can never be any judgment. But then if there's never any judgment, how do you re- evaluate whether the situation is because maybe that person got themselves into it by wrong choices? And so the shift of language, the shift to take empathy and, and make it the new term and do away with sympathy in many ways is the Trojan horse to so many false teachings, which is interesting because the word sympathy really means to suffer with, to have compassion. Sympathy doesn't mean we completely identify with the person.
1: It means that we show compassion. We understand, but never at the expense of objective truth, which is found in God's word alone. Biblically, we have to understand that we can be sympathetic to so many of the things going on in the world.
0: But the objective truth is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by the only way that there can be reconciliation to God or reconciliation among people.
1: Empathy would never had allowed Jew and Gentile to be one in Christ. Never. Never at all. It's a Trojan horse.
0: This is why the gospel is so scandalous, especially in today's culture, because it says, despite what you feel, despite what you think, despite your experiences, at the foot of the cross, everybody's the same, sinful, and needs and can only be reconciled through the shed blood of of Jesus Christ. This revealed mystery that Paul talks about is the only way for true healing and true unity to come about, but it has to happen vertically before it ever happens horizontally. People want unity without God. It's impossible. There is no other way. The gospel and the gospel alone is the solution. If the gospel could bring Jew and Gentile together, it could bring black and white together. It could bring rich and poor together. It could bring Asian and Hispanic together. It can bring educated and uneducated together because if the gospel can bring holy God and sinful man together, it sure can bring people together. We don't have time, but I want you guys to write down Ephesians chapter two verses 11 through 22. And I want you to read it because it hammers home this very point that the mystery of the gospel, that Jew and Gentile can be one in Christ
1: because Christ has reconciled all men to himself is found there read it slowly meditate on how the gospel of the Lord Jesus
0: Christ is the reconciler of all peoples at all times and in all places. And we need to accept the fact that division is always going to exist. There is always going to be division. There will never be perfect reconciliation and unity in this world. But we need to understand this division is not because of what the world thinks. There's always going to be division because there's always going to be two groups. There's going to be those who are one in Christ and those who are one in sin. You are either one in Christ or one in sin. That's the funny thing. There's so much of the arguing that goes back and forth. They realize that the, They don't realize how much they have in common, that they're both sinful and condemned before a holy God and he be reconciled to him. Those are the only two groups in Christ and in the world. But the mystery of the gospel is that it could bring people together. Because in Christ, we don't only become one covenant community, we become one body. And so we need to understand the preciousness of this message and then we need to powerfully go and proclaim it with our words. But then we also need to live it out. That's why I shared in the beginning that story of me and this Jewish lawyer that some of you know. Because why else would that have happened? Because the mystery of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's funny is that as we talked and we got to know each other more, we realized, wow, we're actually not that different in many ways. We actually have a lot more in common than we thought. In our depravity, in our need of Christ, in the foolishness and sin we ran our, our lives into. Sure, we might have done it at different economic brackets, but sin is sin, condemns equally. And so we recognize wow, we actually had a lot more in common in our sin and in our need of Christ than we thought. And when we came to Christ, we became friends, we became brothers, we became one in this covenant body. That's what the power of the gospel does. It reconciles us to God and it reconciles then us to each other. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you that you sent your son to reconcile all people to yourself, but then recognizing because all people have been reconciled to yourself, we can be reconciled to each other. We recognize that reconciliation only happens through the shed blood. There is no other way. We thank you that this mystery has not continued to be hidden, but that it is revealed in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us these new hearts and new affections. And we ask now, Lord, that you would strengthen us by your word and your spirit, that we would live in light of this great mystery, that we would proclaim to all people in all places at all times that they must be reconciled to you and that that is how true reconciliation will come into the world. I pray, Lord, for so much of the division that's going on in our country and globally. I lament, Lord, that so much of it, that all of it is because people are refusing to come to you and deal with the real issue. And so, Father, I pray that you would raise us up here in this room and online who are joining us in the church around the world to proclaim the mystery that now has been revealed by you in your son, And then we tell them if Jew and Gentile can come together because they've been made together in Christ, and so can we. But we must all first come to the foot of the cross.
1: And when that happens, we can all sit at the table. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.